東京からお届けする G ポッドインターネットでお聞きいただけます URL は外人ポッドトコム Direct from Tokyo Japan This is the G pod Bringing you the best of Japan Anthony Joe hosts the G pod Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the G Pod. I'm your host, Anthony Joe, and this is G Pod number 25, brought to you by Gaijin Pod. On today's show, we're going to be talking to a gentleman named Tim Romero, who has been in Japan a long time. Tim is,、uh, came here originally in the 80s,、um, came here originally as a musician. He was like a rock and roll guy and、uh, came here to be a rock and roll guy and realized he was better suited for being an entrepreneur than being a rock and roll guy. So he's been in Japan since the 80s. Building up companies. He started a number of companies、uh, himself, sold a few, and he's heavily involved in the startup scene here in Japan. And、um, the startup scene in Japan, Japan's kind of an interesting country when it comes to the startup scene because it's, it's obviously not like San Francisco or、uh, many other large kind of tech hubs around the world. Um, I'd say that the, the business as usual in Japan is typically these large companies kind of run the show, right? So the, the small startups, that, that culture doesn't really exist here, but、uh, it is changing. And there are a lot of smaller companies that are looking to try to gain some traction in the Japanese market and around the world. So, Tim is involved in this,、uh, in this industry and he recently started a podcast called Disrupting Japan where he interviews Both Japanese and foreigners who are trying to get their startups off the ground, and some of them are actually quite doing quite well.、Uh, so, I've been listening to it for the past few weeks, and、uh, it's a really great podcast, really good insight into doing business here in Japan. If you want to come to Japan here and、uh, take advantage of the opportunities here, this is a podcast that I highly recommend that you check out. So, we'll be、uh, talking to Tim a little bit later on the show, but first, I want to talk about comedy.、Um, there's an co- improv comedy troupe here in Japan called、uh, Pirates of Tokyo Bay. And they are an improv group that's been operating for a number of years. And they are celebrating their four year anniversary、uh, this coming Sunday down in Rapungi. And if you've never been to one of their improv shows,、um, they're absolutely hilarious. I highly recommend it. They do a bilingual improv show. So, whether you speak Japanese or English or you don't, trust me, you'll understand half the show.、Um, but、uh, a lot of it is it's just a lot of good fun. And so,、um, I thought I'd invite the founder of、uh, Pirates of Tokyo Bay, Mike Staffa, to come on the show and tell us a little bit about what、uh, the anniversary show is all about. So, hey, Mike, welcome to the G Pod. How are you doing? Thanks for having me.、Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the history of the Pirates,、uh, how you guys got started? Sure, yeah.、Uh, the, the long history is、uh, I started a group in Osaka in 2005 called the Pirates of the Dotenbori.、Um, I moved there first to work with the comedy、uh, powerhouses in Osaka, Yoshimoto, Shochiku. After five years, I moved to Tokyo and expanded the brand.、Uh, so we still have the Pirates of the Dotenbori in Osaka. And I started the Pirates of Tokyo Bay in 2010. Okay, okay. Where did you come from originally?、Uh, I'm from Minnesota in、okay. the United States. I'm curious, when you came here and you started this comedy troupe, what was it like? Were you, was the, is the humor different here? Were your audiences different than what you're used to back in the States? Yeah,、uh, that was kind of a big reason why I went to Osaka first. 
um, was just, it's the comedy capital. Uh, I've performed and lived in Australia doing comedy uh, as well as England and the United States. So I wanted to kind of challenge myself and try more Asian style of comedy. Uh, so after learning it in Osaka, uh, I decided to move to Tokyo where there's a little more international feel uh, and the audience is a little more uh, half Western, half right. Japanese. Um, I would say the, the comedy style, they, they like physical in Japan, I guess. But by having kind of the bilingualness of the show and the audience members, we're able to kind of hit on both sides of funny, uh, whether it's very physical or very uh, wordplay. Um, everyone in the audience will have something to laugh about because we're covering both bases. When you say physical, do you mean more like slapstick? Yeah, uh, I mean, if you come to a show, we really move around on stage a lot. Uh, there, are, there are some very physical games, not so much like hitting you over the top of the head uh, slapstick or manzai style, but uh, definitely a lot of body movement and, and communicating with your body as well as verbally. Okay, okay. Now, uh, your show up here in Tokyo, you have a, a cast of both uh, Westerners and Japanese, is that right? Correct. Yep. And yep. Uh, and your show is all in improv. And if the audience doesn't know, improv is like there's no scripting. You basically take suggestions from the audience and you formulate a show out of that, right? Yeah, exactly. That's what's really cool, I think, is every show is different. So even if you came to every show every month, it would be completely different. It's all based on what the audience wants, uh, what they want to see, and what they want to uh, have us talk about. So it really is, I think, no. there's no chance of failure because that's what the audience wants us to do, and so we'll we'll right, cover it. Right. Now, so one thing I'm kind of curious about is, you know, from an outsider looking into Japanese culture, improvisation, spontaneity, these are not words that you normally associate with Japanese culture, <laughs> right? So how do you right. find your, your Japanese cast members, and how do they do kind of in the show? Right. Um, it, it, I don't want to say an uphill battle, because that's... Uh, not putting them in the correct light. We've been lucky enough to have our Japanese members uh, spend significant time overseas. So they kind of have that, that Western mentality, at least a little bit uh, inside them already. Um, but to be able to do improv and just go on stage and just start talking off the top of your head, uh, it really needs to be, you need to be able to trust everyone on stage. So when you first join the Pirates, and especially with the Japanese members, we really take on a, a family role, uh, supporting them on and off stage, uh, whether it's drinking parties or birthday parties or just different things to kind of make them feel uh, at ease with everyone. And we found that that has led to a lot of success on stage just by them being able to trust us. Uh, and because we do Japanese games, they're much more comfortable in their own native language. Right, so right. Uh, it's been fun to see them kind of take on improv from a Japanese point of view. Right, right. That's interesting. What, what have you found uh, some of the differences between the Western audience, say, when you were performing in Australia versus the Japanese audience here? Right. Uh, they're much more aggressive, and I, I don't want to say abusive, but uh, when I performed in Australia, being an American, uh, they could pick up on my accent, and they knew that I wouldn't know the terminologies or the lingo of Australia, so they were very quick to try to make me uh, make a mistake. So I would ask for a suggestion of a city in Australia, and they would pick the most random, you know, small-town Inaka right. city. Yeah, exactly. Just to see the American not be able to know right. what it was. Uh, so they were much more they were much more engaged in having fun with the performers, whether it's a positive or negative <laughs> point of view. That being said, after living there for three months and learning these words, uh, once the audiences tried to trick me and I knew the words in Australia, then I got a lot more support, uh, I think, than the regular Australian oh. performers. So yeah, uh, in Japan, uh, they're much more reserved. 
Um, we do a we do a English only show in Shibuya. We do a Japanese only show uh, in Shinjuku, and then we do a bilingual show in Ebisu. Uh, those are our usual shows, and each show takes on its own different style uh, based on who the audience really is. Um, with the bilingual show and the special bilingual show that we have coming up in Rapungi, we've seen a lot of the bilingual audience members be couples, uh, whether it's a, a a guy with a Japanese girlfriend or, or vice versa. Uh, people that want to kind of test their language skills in the other language. So that being said, because they're couples and they're they're there for a good time, they're a really relaxed and polite audience. <laughs> okay. uh, when we do the English only shows, uh, you know, we might get more bankers and more just guys that uh, people focused on the English language, so they can be a little more tough, uh, a little more dirty, I would say, uh, with the suggestions. Right. right. Do you ever yeah. have a uh, difficult time getting suggestions from? Uh, when you do your Japanese show, like from the Japanese audience? Right, right. Uh, yeah, we have had times where it's been you know, difficult to get uh, suggestions, but we've also performed alongside and we've also seen other Japanese improv groups oh. perform. Uh, there's a couple other Japanese-only groups and we're friends with them. And some of their techniques to get the suggestions is they'll actually pay a compliment to the audience person first. So, hey, you in the beautiful blue sweater, could you give us you know, your... Uncle's occupation. So by complimenting them, they kind of feel relaxed. Uh, another style that uh, the Japanese groups do is they actually just write out kind of a, a survey. Give us a noun, give us a location, give us an action, give us a job. And then they hand it out before the show and people fill it out and then turn it back in. That way they're disconnected to the actual suggestion. Oh, okay. Okay. So if, if the scene doesn't go well, then they kind of feel, oh, no one knows right. that I gave that suggestion. That, that didn't work. Right. Um, so it, it definitely takes on a different style. We performed in Manila two years ago, and it was the loudest audience I'd ever been in front of. It was like a Jerry Springer slash Southern Baptist oh. audience just screaming. Uh, and that was a whole different problem of trying to quiet the audience so we could comprehend uh, what right, they were saying. But right. the Japanese audience is much more, a, a little more tricky, but it, we haven't had a problem where it stopped the show. He, These people are they're coming to see improv, right. so... We'll get it out Do of them. Do you ever, um, you know, some some comedians and some comedy troops in, in America, part of the act is to make fun of the audience or or someone specific in the audience. You know what I mean? Like, when right. you said you right. asked someone for a suggestion, but a lot of comedians may kind of single someone out. Uh, I right. know Russell Peters; he kind of does that a lot in, in his act. Right? C- could you do I that think- here, or would that not go over very well? It wouldn't go over well for a couple of reasons. Maybe in the English show it could if we had a really bad heckler. But in general, we shy away from that. One, we're not famous enough that we can you know, make someone that angry that they wouldn't come back. Uh, we, we really need the audiences right. to come each I month. Let me make them angry, um, but I'm like, you know, because it's all done in good humor. I'm not talking about like, like you know, pissing someone right. out. But, but that kind of like singling someone out in, in a funny way, does that work here right. with the Japanese audience? Or is that kind of totally taboo? It, I wouldn't say it's taboo. I just think it, it falls on deaf ears. It just doesn't get picked right, okay. up. And so it just seems confusing. Right. Um, we, we really are walking a, a fine line of the bilingualness of our show, you know, being able to comprehend with the audience who's from many different countries along with our performers. So, you know, if one person went off on that kind of comedic rant or, or something like that, it might confuse both the performers and the audience. So. Yeah, we really kind of shy away right. from that. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So tell me about this anniversary show that you guys have coming up. Right, yeah, it's going to be huge. It's in Rapungi. 
Uh, it's right by Rapungi Hills at Super Deluxe, which is a really big venue um, in Rapungi. If you know kind of Rapungi Hills area or the McDonald's, it's you know about 100 meters from that McDonald's in front of Rapungi Hills. Uh, it's our fourth anniversary show, and we just really want to celebrate how quickly we've grown. Um, so we usually do our regular bilingual shows in Ebisu, but we wanted to have a special show and a bigger venue, 200-plus uh, people uh, at Super Deluxe. So it'll be this coming Sunday. Or, um, <laughs> Sorry, you can edit whenever you're going to uh, play this. Uh, but November 16th uh, at Super Deluxe, we have some special guests. Some of our Osaka Pirates are coming up uh, to perform alongside us. Uh, we have new games that we're going to debut. And we have a couple digital celebrities that will be making an appearance. Digital celebrities? Uh, What's a digital yeah, celebrity? Well, they're, they're calling in from uh, the United oh, really? States. Okay. Yeah, some, uh, some epic guests that we have lined up. Um, unfortunately, they couldn't uh, get over right. here. Uh, but they are going to make an appearance and they are going to challenge us uh, in some new ways. So it should be pretty exciting. Cool. And then if people want to buy tickets for this, how do they do it? Yep. Uh, they can find the information on piratesoftokyobay.com uh, or superdeluxe.com. You can make your reservations there. Uh, but just in general, you can go right to the venue uh, and pick up your tickets uh, the, that okay. day. That's absolutely fine. It was on yeah. November 16th. And uh, what's the yep. start time? Yep, doors open at 7, and start time is 7.30. Um, and then they'll probably finish around 9.45, I guess. It's 2,500 yen, but we buy you your first drink. Great. Wow, awesome. So it's not bad at Rampungi. Well, I'm looking forward to it. This will be my first time to uh, see your show in person. And uh, awesome. I can't wait. And I'll make sure I post the links to your site and all the information about the show on the show notes of this episode of the G-Pod. Appreciate it, Anthony. Appreciate it very Thanks, much. Mike, and uh, looking forward to seeing you next Sunday. Great. Thanks. Have a great day. Uh, before we get to Tim, I just want to quickly cover a few things, uh, a few articles that have been posted up to Gaijin Pot. As you know, last week we had Halloween in Japan, and uh, I went down to Shibuya to take some photos and video uh, for the event, and I was really surprised at how big it was. I mean, there was just thousands of people packed into Shibuya. If you've ever been to Shibuya Crossing on like the busiest day that you can think about, it's twice as many people as that. It was just absolutely packed down there. And what a really different experience Halloween in Japan than what I'm used to back home. I mean, back home, Halloween, as an adult anyways, I mean, you kind of, it's a big party, everyone gets drunk, usually end up fighting and, you know, tearing your costume and going home. But here, I mean, it was so strange. Everyone was, uh, everyone was out having a good time. It was really interesting to see, like, kind of the Japanese people reacting and talking to each other because you don't really see this a lot here. You don't see strangers kind of interacting with each other. But what I saw is people asking total strangers to take their picture, if they could take their picture. Groups are getting together for group photographs, and uh, it was a, a lot of fun. Some really creative costumes uh, were on display. So if you're ever in Japan around Halloween, definitely go down to Shibuya because it's, I think it's becoming a really big uh, festival here. It's, essentially, it's, it's a giant cosplay party is what it is. I think many people probably don't even know what Halloween is, but um, to them, it's just a giant cosplay uh, car- party. But that was a lot of fun. Anyways, so um, on uh, on Gajima blog, we've posted some articles recently about Halloween, and uh, the first one is um, f- 
five Japanese horror movies that you must watch. Now, I'm sure many of you have seen the movie The Ring, where the girl crawls out of the TV or whatever.、Um, that's about the extent of my Japanese horror movie knowledge. But、uh, one of our writers, James Darnbrook, has put together a really great list of Japanese horror movies. Now, if you love horror movies or you love Japanese movies, I definitely recommend you check out this list because he has picked some really obscure. Horror movies that、uh, I'm sure many of you have never even heard of. I mean, and I'm not talking about like the, the goriest one or the scariest one or something like that. He really created a really、uh, nicely curated list here. And some of these movies are really old. Like, there's one movie, Oni Baba, is released in 1964. And、um, it's, it, it's interesting about this movie is, I mean, because if you think about a lot of horror movies nowadays coming out of Hollywood, what are they? They're almost all zombie movies, right? So. Um, but this movie, Onibaba, there's no ghosts, monsters, zombies, anything like that. It's just a story that's like super suspenseful story that freaks you out.、Um, it's all black and white, really old, so definitely check that out. There's another movie here called The House,、uh, one called Audition, Infection, and The Grudge. I think some of you might know The Grudge because it was made,、uh, I think they did a remake of it in Hollywood. But,、uh, so if you love. Horror movies, and you want to watch some Japanese horror movies, check out that article.、Um, something on a little bit of a lighter topic.、Um, this last week was the、uh, past week, actually, was the 60th anniversary of Godzilla. So, 60 years ago, Godzilla was shown in the theaters here in Japan. So, I had a special guest writer, Jim Ballard, who、uh, works at ACTV. Write an article about Godzilla. And if you don't know, ACTV is the production company that Gaijinpot uses to do a lot of our videos. And you've probably never seen Jim or JR because they're always behind the camera. But these two guys are the biggest Godzilla geeks that you've ever met. <laughs> I think JR probably has more Godzilla toys in his house than he's got baby toys. And these guys, you hear them talk about Godzilla as scary. So, they do a series on YouTube called Sci Fi Japan where they,、uh, they interviewed a number of people who are associated with the Godzilla、uh, television show. So, they interviewed the director, they interviewed、um, the guy who actually was in the suit, the special effects people, and all that stuff. So, what Jim has written is an article about kind of the Godzilla films throughout the years. Starting in the 60s, going to the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. So, if,、uh, if you're into Godzilla and you kind of want to take a look back at where Godzilla got started,、uh, definitely check this article out. Very interesting article.、Um, next is、uh, Lynn Ullman has brought us a really great how to article. These how to articles, they don't really ever you know, go crazy on our site, they're not super big traffic draws. But they are so vital for when you move here. <laughs> Because some of this stuff, you don't realize how difficult it is unless you speak Japanese when you first get here. So, her article is about how to figure out your Japanese laundry products. Now, you think it'd be as easy as going to the store looking for a box of Tide or something like that. But no, 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 it's not, it's not like that. And the thing I find too is like some of these products that you want to buy in Japan. They're not, they don't even resemble the same shape of the products that I'm used to back home. You know, like for example, like laundry detergent. Okay, I'm guessing it's either going to be in a small box or kind of like a, 
a jug or something like that. Now you can kind of find those here, but they usually will look a little bit different. And you don't know if you're buying laundry detergent or cereal. So this is a really great article. She's broken down some of the popular brands of laundry detergent and some of the labeling that's on the back about what to exactly look for. So if you don't want to put bleach in your laundry, then make sure you look at the label on the back, tell you, uh, you know, you're using bleach instead of fabric softener. Because if you mix those two up, you're going to have some very interesting clothes. So really good article by Lynn. Uh, really trying to develop out the how-to section of Gaijin Pot. Um, so check this article out if you're lost trying to do your laundry. Um, Andrew Smith has written an article about the three great jogging areas in Tokyo. Uh, I don't know if Tokyo is a great jogging city or not. I, I suppose the air is fairly clean. I mean, it's cleaner probably than when I, you know, where I used to live in Bangkok. But um, I wouldn't particularly say it's a great jogging city unless you enjoy jogging in the city. I mean, if you enjoy urban jogging, you'll love it here. But for me personally, when I run, I love to go. Kind of out into the nature a little bit, but that doesn't—that's not close in Tokyo. But there are a few places actually within the city where you can kind of get out into a little bit of some green areas. So he's written an article here about the three areas that he likes around Tokyo, uh, them being Yoyogi Park, the Imperial Palace, and Meguro River. Kind of gives you a little bit of access to the green parts of Tokyo. And actually, someone posted in the comments um, the Ara. Arakawa River, Arakawa River, Arikawa River. How do you say that? Arakawa River. Um, that I also agree, which is absolutely fantastic. And I've actually done a couple of videos riding my bike along the Arakawa River. And so, if you're into running or cycling, uh, definitely check out this article. You can find some of these hidden spots within the concrete jungle known as Tokyo. The last article I want to talk about is written by Kelsey. Luzinger? I've actually never said Kelsey's last name on the show. How do you pronounce her last name? Luzinger? Legzinger? Anyway, she's written an article titled Japan, Japanese, Korean, Chinese. What's the difference? Now, this article went a little bit crazy on our Facebook page, caused a lot of people to uh, make comment, and uh, even on the actual site, there's a lot of comments. And I think a lot of people kind of misunderstood the point of this article. There's some people commenting on this, you know, some of the nitpicking on some of the, the terminology that she used. But what this article is about is if if you've never lived in an Asian country before, you never left America or wherever you're from, you never lived in an Asian country. I mean, chances are you might not be aware of what are some of the major differences between China, Korea, and Japan. And it sounds ignorant, but if you've never left, you've never you would know, right? Just the same as I'm sure many people in Japan or other parts of Asia probably couldn't tell the difference between a French, Italian, German guy. Um, so her article was kind of based on her view before before she came here. She didn't really know much about Asia, and so based on being in Japan, what she saw. Now some people are freaking out because she's basing it on. Her experiences in dealing with Koreans and Chinese in Japan, so they're not saying it's an authentic experience. If you want to deal with, you know, uh, uh, you want to um, get an idea of what Chinese people are like, go to China, and you know, which is kind of a valid point. But she's writing it from the point of view of someone coming to Japan and being exposed to these other cultures within Japan. So. Um, kind of an interesting article. I think basically only one person got the point of this article. 
uh, amongst like the hundred or so comments that were posted. But uh, if you're interested in kind of, and some people man just went crazy on the history of China and Korea and just went nuts on the comments. So if you want to check this out, get a history lesson and see what everyone's talking about, uh, you can do so on the uh, Gaijinpop blog. And once again, I'll post the links to all these epi- all these articles on the show notes of this episode of the G Pod. And this is episode number twenty-five. On today's show, we're going to be talking about startups in Japan with our special guest Tim Romero. Tim is a longtime resident of Japan. He has started a number of technology companies, published numerous articles about entrepreneurialism in Japan, and has recently started his own podcast called Disrupting Japan, which covers the startup scene here. Hi, Tim. Welcome to the G Pod. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, I've been listening to your show for the past couple of weeks, and I got to say, I absolutely love it. It's fantastic. Well, thank you. Um, I think you're up to number six now. Is it? Uh, yeah, we just released uh, show number six. And uh, I've been really enjoying it. I've been looking for a, sh- a show about doing business in Japan in English. There's not a lot of those out there. Well, there's um, – quite honestly, until recently, I don't think there's been much of a need for one. Uh, but there's been certainly in the last 10 years um, a real increase in the number of foreigners that are coming here and starting companies. And um, it really is changing the way business is done in Japan. Interesting. Can you give our audience kind of a quick background on yourself and what what brought you to Japan? Well, sure. Um, Actually, I I first came here, believe it or not, as a professional musician. I I came here to make a record and I had big, long 1980s, you know, hair. (laughs) Uh, My music career was short, but... um, Short career, long hair. Short career, long hair. (laughs) Um, But I ended up staying... um, In 1996, I thought this whole internet thing sounded interesting, so I quit my job, started an e-commerce company, sold that one. Um, Rinse, wash, repeat. Uh, I've started four companies here, uh, sold two, bankrupted two, so I'm batting 500, (laughs) which is a pretty good record. Um, And then when you originally – what year did you come to Japan originally? Well, the very first time I moved to Japan was 1988. Okay. Okay. Um, But I went back – to Los Angeles. Uh, after that, again, the music career. Right. Still trying to make it as Still a, trying to. The rock but, uh, star? Yeah, yeah. It wasn't in the cards. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm, I'm curious because, you know, I haven't been in Japan very long, only a couple of years, but um, what was it like for you coming to Japan in 88? Well, it, it was a different world back then. Um, that Back then, English teachers were making $150 an hour. It was a height of the bubble. Uh, Juliana's was still open. Oh, and for those who don't know, uh, do, do, do a Google search on Juliana's Tokyo and the images will probably be safe for work. <laughs> um, it, it was just this crazy club. Um, but that was, that was bubble times. Right. Um, people were throwing away money on ridiculous projects. Um, so that was sort of the first Japanese bubble I went through. Okay. The second one was around 2000, which was uh, my company. And, uh, you know, we had our own tech bubble here in Japan around 2000, and uh, it ended much the same way it did in the U.S., with a lot of uh, bankruptcies and people losing an awful lot of money. Right. right. And people now are, are saying that the startup scene here is still in a bit of – or is starting to be in a bit of a bubble, but it really is different this time. It feels different. Uh, the last time there was a tremendous amount of money being invested in very few startups – and this time we're seeing probably more money in aggregate, but it's spread over 
oh, 10 times, 100 times more different types of companies. Um, the startup companies are starting to work with each other more, which almost never happened 15 years ago. So it's a much healthier environment. And I think that, you know, when the, when the next crash comes, as they always do, that the ecosystem is now strong enough that it's going to continue to thrive. Well, actually, probably what will probably happen is the companies that are strong now and secure and not kind of riding the wave of VC bubble money will be the ones that will survive, right? The Very ones that so. like, like Socks.com or some of these other ones that <laughs> right, are, right. Those they, are the ones that are just fluff will disappear. As they always do. But even in the downturns, I mean, some of the most innovative, successful companies are founded in hard times. Right, right, right. One thing I'm curious about is um, you said that uh, there's a lot more entrepreneurial ideas starting to come in Japan now as more foreigners coming here. There, there wasn't this need for kind of English um, uh, before. When you first came here, what was the reaction like um, for Japanese people to a foreigner? Different than now or? Very much so. Um, foreigners in business are always a bit of um, a, bit of a novelty, um, to put it politely. Um, it's neither a good thing nor a bad thing. Um, you just sort of learn how to sell and find your own way. You know, you find your niche in the ecosystem, as it were. Right. Um, there's more people doing it now. There are more foreign managers at Japanese companies. So we're not seen as these strange exotic creatures that we used to be. Right, right, right. And then do, would you say now there's more opportunities for foreigners? Absolutely. I mean, there's always been opportunities for people who wanted to kind of land and, and figure things out for themselves. Mm. But I'd say in the last five, five years, certainly, there's been an awful lot of uh, new Japanese companies that are willing to hire uh, foreigners just as readily as they would Japanese. Mm. Interesting. Um, so you've been here for, for a while now. One thing I'm kind of curious about is what are your thoughts on the demise of the tech giants? like Sony and Panasonic and some of these, these big Japanese brands that were once huge, they're still big, but they haven't, they've kind of lost their luster a little bit. Well, I think it's uh, Sony in particular is an interesting one because I think um, the people, Apple's leadership should study what happened to Sony hmm. because Sony was, and you know, your, your younger listeners won't, may not know this, but it was one of the most innovative, progressive companies that has ever been on the face of the planet. Uh, they pretty much, they, they didn't invent, but they popularized the transistor radio, the floppy disk, the, uh, the television tube. Walkman. I mean, the Walkman, yeah. yeah. So they were a force to be reckoned with. And after their founder retired, they never, they, they sort of lost their way and they made robot dogs and, and these really <laughs> clever, interesting engineering things that nobody wanted to buy right. for $30,000 or whatever they were selling them for. Right. Um, so I, I think what's, what's really hurting them is what, what hurts an awful lot of mature companies uh, and a, a lack of innovation, a lack of ability to change. Um, but I mean, I know people at Sony, they, they, this fact is not lost on them. Right. <laughs> um, but it, it's hard. No, knowing the problem and fixing the problem are two different things. Right. And that actually leads me to, to your first podcast um, where you talked about can Japan change? And you gave these examples in the past where Japan has done kind of a, a radical 180. Absolutely. And really grown. 
Do you think that these companies could do that again? These companies? Um, maybe, maybe not, or but maybe some Japan, new company or? might. I think Japan can. Um, Japan, uh, for those who are, are students of history, Japan has been through two completely transformative uh, eras in which they their whole society was transformed within 30 to 60 years. And this time – so I mean Japan is capable of change. The question is uh, this time they've got to do it from the bottom up. Mm. So during the, the Meiji the, – the Meiji restoration, during the post-war reconstruction, these were all top-down uh, command and control type decisions. And to – you can't innovate that way. You can't create startups that way. Um, the, the positive thing I see is that the, the Japanese uh, government leadership, the educational institutions are aware of this. Uh, they often mean well. And there are places I see particularly – I'm a big fan of Fukuoka where they really are having this kind of bottom-up uh, technical innovation where the startup ecosystem is really led by entrepreneurs rather mm -hmm. than venture capitalists or, you know, God help them, uh, government bureaucrats. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm optimistic. I read an article recently that talked about one of the struggles that um, entrepreneurs have in Japan is kind of this hierarchical culture structure that they have here that the, the senior man must know best and so everyone below him must listen to him. So when entrepreneurs are looking to get funding, the idea um, is, you know, yeah. the VC, he's an older guy, established, he knows what he's talking about. We must listen to him, but he might not necessarily be the best person to advise. This that, is a that point startup. that absolutely drives me crazy. Um, yeah, it, it is a big problem. It is one of the biggest problems. Um, and one of the things I'm hoping to sort of address with my podcast as foreign founders and foreign VCs are far more interested in what founders have to say as opposed to what other VCs have to say. Right. Um, the younger Japanese entrepreneurs will follow that lead. Um, but right now, I'd say one of the biggest challenges facing startups in Japan uh, in terms of like a cultural outlook is this deference to authority. Um, founders will heed the advice of VCs who are, you know, Maybe very smart people, but they're MBAs who've graduated from a top school who've never run a business in their life, um, and that's just uh, a recipe for disaster. Right, right. What, what are these young entrepreneurs doing? Like, what are they doing in Fukuoka? Well, it, it's not so much a particular business model because um, I've, I mean, for my own investments, I've I, I do not make a good investor. I'm I'm an execution guy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I can build something, but I can't pick a winner early on. Um, so the, the actual – the difference in the business models between the startups in Tokyo and Osaka and Fukuoka, they're, they're not that different. Um, but I, I think it's more the focus of the community. So for example, um, I, I've been to events in Tokyo where uh, – and these are startup events where the entire lineup of speakers does not include a single founder. Hmm. They are all academics or VCs. Hmm. And I think what's happening in Fukuoka is that they don't have as much money as Tokyo and Osaka. Right, right. So the government can't really invest in startups. Um, so what they do is they just say, OK, well, we'll open up these facilities for you guys to use if you want to. And we'll shine a spotlight on you and say, look at this cool stuff you're doing, but uh, you have to make it work. 
And that really does seem to be the right formula. And uh, I like to remind people that Silicon Valley didn't take root in New York or in, in Washington, D.C. And I honestly believe you need to get a certain distance away from financial or government power to be truly innovative. Right, right. So um, I've got high hopes for Fukuoka. Right. <laughs> you know, I've been to Fukuoka numerous times and I absolutely love it. It's a, it's a great place. fantastic city. Um, in your experience in dealing with like a lot of these young entrepreneurs – are they facing pressure from, say, their, their family or, or, or friends to not be an entrepreneur, to go to be a, you know, go into a Japanese company? A little bit, but uh, much less so than, uh, say, 15, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I started my first company here, one of the engineers I wanted to hire, I had to go meet – he was a new graduate – and I had to go meet his mom and, yeah, explain, okay, this is what a startup is and these people are giving us money and, no, 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 we're, we're pretty stable and we're going to sell it for more money. And um, she ended up giving him his, her blessing to come work for us. So th- things have gotten better. <laughs> um, I, I do think there is um, a healthy caution hmm. that, you know, parents want their, their, their kids to have a nice stable life and I can't fault them for that. But um, which they did. I mean, the sure. thing about they did working for Mitsubishi for fifty years or whatever. They had a nice stable life, so in their mind, yeah, that's the thing to do. But over the last twenty-five years or so, that social contract has really unraveled here. Mm. So mm. lifetime employment is no longer guaranteed. Um, a lot of people, a lot of young people, very sensibly, have decided that look, I'm not going to work sixty hours a week for forty years, and you know, maybe get fired. When I'm in 50, right? Um, they'd much rather roll the dice, uh, try something, follow their own vision, follow their own dreams, um, and that's admirable. And I'd say certainly in their the, for the people in their 20s, um, society is more and more accepting of that right. of that career choice. Right. It's harder for the guys who are in their say 40s and 50s who who want to move into entrepreneurship. Mm. Mm. So it might be a generational thing. Yeah. I, I, you know, I guess I, I imagine that's probably the same almost anywhere, right? If you're in your 40s and 50s and you have a family, to come home and say, hey, kids, guess what? I quit my job at Ford or wherever. Well, that's going to be shocking anywhere. I'm starting Absolutely. a new startup. But I, I think the difference in Japan is that in America, if someone leaves uh, McKinsey and says, I'm going to, to be CEO of this startup and hopefully lead them to an IPO, mm. and if it doesn't work out, that person's career isn't over. Right. You know, right. the failure is not an albatross that is hung around his neck. Right. But in Japan, um, it still is hmm. for for that age, for sort of 40s, 50s plus. So failure is still uh, – people still judge you very harshly for it in that generation. You actually talked about that in one of your podcasts, didn't you? Talking about uh, the concept of failure here in Japan and how – Japanese people view it compared to how it's viewed in America. It's kind of a recurring theme, actually. <laughs> um, particularly the, the founders I talk to who've, who've been in America and have been in Japan, um, that, that is one of the things they notice most strikingly. And um, I think in America, we have this idea that, it, you know, it's almost the other extreme. If someone succeeds the very first time, we don't give him as much credit. It's okay, may, maybe he just got lucky. Right. Mm-hmm. But if someone fails the first two or three times and then succeeds, it's like, OK, yeah, we've unbelievable respect. That guy. Right. You know, he deserves it. Right. Right. In Japan, it doesn't quite 
work that way. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Are a lot of the young entrepreneurs that you're dealing with, do they want to go to America? Some do. Um, there has been a, a growing number of um, – well, this has been a change too. Um, America has been – has become much more global in its outlook. Right. Um, Ten years ago, it would be extremely unusual for a Sandhill company to look at firms in Japan, you know, let alone, you know, Indonesia or China. Right. right. Um, but now it's very common. Um, and the flip side of that is that a lot of these companies are going to, to uh, San Francisco. It does make sense for some of them. Um, it's easier to raise funds. Uh, my view is always you want to be close to your customers regardless of, of where you are. Right, right. Um, so it, it, it does make sense for some firms that do it. You know, it's, it's absolutely fascinating to me, this kind of startup culture nowadays, because never in our history – did you have the ability to start something and have this global reach almost instantly? It's fantastic, right? isn't it? If you think about like the Industrial Revolution, you could not start a rail line in your backyard right. and, and have it across America. Like there's just, there's just too many obstacles in your way. But now, I mean, you see some of these kids that start businesses in their, in their, in their room and they get funding and it catches on and suddenly it's all around the world. Oh, it's absolutely fantastic. And you see it with some people who don't even necessarily get funding and create a wonderful little open source tool right. or a, even a silly little game like Flappy Bird. Right, right. And it becomes this global sensation. Um, I, I think that's the most – one of the most wonderful things about the age we're living in. Right, right. What, what would you think about the, the startup scene here in Japan now? Um, in, in what respect? That's such a broad question. Yeah. What I mean is like you mentioned that it's, it's starting to grow now. Is it is it opening up to foreigners? Is it, is it still kind of quite young? Um, both. It, it, it's growing rapidly. It's I'd say it's extremely open to foreigners, uh, particularly foreign engineers. Um, you know, if you're – if you want to be a foreign salesman, for example, you know, the language skills are extremely important. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it is it, – it, it is growing. There is a lot of silliness in some of the companies that get funded, um, but that that's true everywhere. If you spend some time in San Francisco, you'll you'll quickly realize that it, it's not – the quality varies significantly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it is healthy. Um, in fact, I, I'd really like to say that like San Francisco is the anomaly. So if you compare – and I, I really wish Japanese cities and, and global cities would stop comparing themselves to San Francisco. Right. Um, if you compare the startup ecosystem in Tokyo to say that in London or Boston, um, it's smaller but you see the same dynamics. Right, right. You know, you, you do see people changing jobs more frequently in the startups. Right. You see startups working with each other. Um, you see very small teams with limited capital bootstrapping themselves up to their first hundred company, uh, hundred customers. Right. So it is a very healthy, if early, ecosystem here. Right. Right. Yeah, that's that's a good point you make actually. Because a lot of times, as an entrepreneur, you especially in the startup scene, you kind of want to look to San Francisco and see what they're doing there. But really, that that's almost like Disneyland. It's it's this crazy money floating around. Almost anybody can start something now. You have like this massive talent pool available to you, designers, developers, almost everywhere. It's unlimited. So you, you can't really compare, you know, your market here to what's going on over there. Absolutely not. And it, it's a fantastic place. I enjoy every trip I make out there. But it's not 
they couldn't do it again right. if they had to. It was right. a one-time confluence of amazing coincidences and events and some very smart people and a lot of uh, government research money and a bit of secret sauce. And <laughs> it happened. Right. You know, uh, uh, on your recent podcast, I was listening to it on the train here. And um, who was the person on your podcast? Jason Winder. Jason Winder, Winder of Make right? Leaps. From Make Leaps. And I was actually taking notes on the train because what he said, he said two things that, that really struck me was one when he talked about the differences between Japanese companies and Western companies. And what he said was that when you approach a Japanese company, they say, it's a great product. We love it. Who else is using it? Absolutely. Or as an American company, says, great product. We love it. How much is it? <laughs> so having that kind of social proof or that, that, that jiseki, I think you call it in Japanese, yep. right, is really important here. And the other thing that he mentioned which I thought was so key is to be extremely detail-oriented when you're dealing with Japanese companies. Yeah, the, the detail-oriented is, is absolutely true, um, both in terms of the product you deliver to them and uh, your level of support. Right. Um, that actually, it's an interesting point. Um, I, think, I don't think this podcast has been released, but I'll give you a, a preview. Tani Moltosan made a very interesting point. He said that, for that reason exactly, American companies make the best customers for ventures. Uh, the reason being that Japanese uh, demand a level of perfection. Mm. So they will communicate the defects in your product mm. but not necessarily help you in executing the vision right. or, or work with you to say how you could build a better one. Right, right. But the, the bar is pretty high. Right. Um, the, the minimum viable product, the definition of viable in Japan is significantly right. uh, higher than it is in San Francisco right. or, you know, the rest of the world, really. Now, I find that kind of interesting because I think a lot of foreign entrepreneurs here, they use their foreignness to create opportunities for themselves, right? Absolutely. You know, he, he mentions it in the podcast a couple of times. And so you use that to kind of bend the social rule here a little bit. But I think the mistake that can be made is that you don't realize where some areas you really have to do things the Japanese way. Like he mentioned in his invoicing, how detailed that has to be. You can't, oh, well, just, you know, just kind of half-ass it here. You've hit on a really important point. Um, you have to know what the rules are right. and what's acceptable to bend and what's acceptable, what you'll be forgiven for later. Right. Um, in there, there's no shortcut to that other than just being here for a long time. But right. I've got to say, doing business in Japan as a foreigner, um, Japanese are incredibly forgiving of honest mistakes. Uh, I've done I've done speeches in Japan that you know sometimes they go well. I mean, in Japanese, and sometimes they go well, and sometimes they just do horribly. You know, I'll make jokes that just nobody laughs at, and it's just you know just. But every time, even after the worst presentations I give, people come up and say, you know, that, that took guts. I, you know, I don't think I could have done that in English and let, let's talk and let's have a beer. And so if you're making an honest effort and you know what social conventions are truly important, um, you can get away with things that Japanese cannot. Um, the problem where a lot of foreigners find themselves is they don't really know where that line is and they'll go too far. They'll abuse it. Um, they'll do things. Well, I'll, one of the things, the most common mistakes I see foreigners do making while they're trying to do the sales process in Japan is um, Japanese consensus making is very much bottom up. And every meeting you get in, there will be a, a more senior person in that meeting. 
And Americans especially have this tendency like, okay, I want to lock on to the more senior person and now he's my contact. Right, right. You don't do that. Hmm. That'll that'll end a deal and end a relationship and you won't know why. Hmm. So what do you do then? You, go, you just – you keep working with your main contact and he'll be building the consensus right. and – He'll bring in more people to the team and, you know, maybe at some point it'll get transitioned over to somebody else. But you never, ever try to jump above right. the person that brought you into the deal, ever. So in your work here, you've obviously worked with a lot of foreign entrepreneurs and Japanese as well. What are, what are some of the disadvantages you see of being a foreign entrepreneur here? I, I It's hard to label anything as an advantage or a disadvantage because I've always viewed them as two sides of the same coin. Uh, any difference can be turned to an advantage or a disadvantage. But if you want to label something as a pure disadvantage, obviously the language ability, um, the the difficulty in interpreting nuance. Um, there is a, you know, Japan, Japanese society is based on these sort of circular overlapping networks. I mean, people stay in touch with their friends from junior high school right. and they'll do business with them. And a foreigner coming in doesn't have access to that. But again, the flip side to that is it's much easier for a foreigner to move between circles, whereas uh, a Japanese, it might be viewed as a little bit of a betrayal. Um, so it, it's not so much – I don't look at it so much as what's an advantage, what's a disadvantage. It's what are the differences and how can I use that? I think one of the key things that foreigners can do when they come here is obviously the language has to be top priority. Right? Absolutely. You can't – as, as much as the tech world operates in kind of an English sphere, business is done here in, in Japanese. Yeah. And I mean, there are a few – if you're an engineer, there are a few companies that will hire you without Japanese language skills. Um, but it's – you know, you want to be able to go somewhere from there. You want to be part of a larger community and a larger society. So, yeah, step one is language Right. Yeah. Step one is language. And then I think the second thing would be is trying to learn as much of the culture as you can by getting in with these groups. Well, yeah. I mean, make friends, uh, live your life, do business. It's not the, – the learning of the culture is something that will happen almost without you making that much effort to learn it per se. You just learn a little about the, the situation you're in. Um, I don't know. I've seen some. I've seen some expats in in other countries for like ten years, and they still don't know anything about what's going on around them. So. <laughs> well, that's fair enough. Yeah, we have our share of those here, don't right? We? So I think you're not going to learn it by osmosis. Put it that way. You're not going to sit there and just absorb it. You have to observe it and that's make true. a conscious effort to see you know what you want to see, what you want to learn, why are people doing this this way. Ask some questions in Japanese, and I, I really think that that. You know, it's, it's not something that's just going to happen to you. I, I agree. I think a better – what I was trying to say is more there – it's not something you necessarily go to school right, to learn. Right, right. Um, But you're absolutely right. You do have to make a conscious effort to to figure out what's going on around you because it's it's quite confusing sometimes. Right. <laughs> I am so lucky that I have uh, bilingual staff that work at that G Plus with me because they always help me before we go into a meeting. Where do I sit? Who do I talk to? How do I hand out the meishi? And – I mean, these guys are fantastic. Um, tell us about your podcast. Uh, your podcast is called Disrupting Japan. Uh, I've been listening to it for the past few weeks, and I actually think it's fantastic. I love it. I was listening to the Thank latest you. episode on the train here, and I was stopping every five minutes to take notes. Um, tell us about uh, how you started the podcast. Okay. Well, it is there is a real dearth of information 
overseas about what's really happening in the Japanese startup community. It's almost all coming from uh, VCs and uh, government think tanks. Um, and if you start, if you talk to the uh, founders, if you talk to the actual entrepreneurs, you get a completely different and extremely optimistic story. Uh, so I figured that uh, a podcast would be a fantastic way to do it. A lot of my friends, I mean, I mean, I've worked with a lot of these people for a long time, or at least know them, you know, socially. And a lot of them are very nervous about doing it in English. So I had to promise to bring beer and wine when necessary. And right. eh, that loosens things up a bit. Right. right. Um, but it is just, it's uh, incredibly optimistic. Um, if you listen to it and you listen to how the people are really growing their businesses, it'll give you a much more favorable view of Japan and where things are headed in the future. Yeah, I totally agree. I've been listening to it. And for me, this is my schooling. You know, this is, <laughs> especially like your latest podcast, like to, to me, this takes someone who's been in Japan for 10 years and I can absorb their information in your 30-minute podcast. Yeah. So I think it's fantastic. Well, thanks. I think that last one, Jason and I had a, a few too many beers by the end of it. There. Oh, really? Like, yeah, I, yeah, I haven't yeah. got to that part yet. Oh, but, yeah. uh, well, so it's, it kind of slides downhill. You, you should have, well, the content's good, <laughs> but you should have heard some of the stuff I had to edit out. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> if people want to listen to your podcast, where can they find it? Go to disruptingjapan.com uh, or search for Disrupting Japan on iTunes. Okay, great. And I'll make sure I post links to uh, both your website and your podcast on the show notes of this episode. Well, thanks, Tim. Thanks for joining me today. I really enjoyed it, and I hope the audience got something out of it as well about doing business in Japan. It's been a blast. Thanks again to Tim for coming on the show. If you're interested in checking out his podcast, and it's something that I highly recommend you do, you can visit his website at disruptingjapan.com, and uh, I'll make sure to post a link to that site from the uh, show notes of this episode. Really great podcast, and I'm looking forward to uh, more episodes from him. Don't forget uh, on November 16th, I guess it depends on when you listen to this, but November 16th, if you're in Tokyo, you can catch the uh, four-year special anniversary show of the Pirates of Tokyo Bay. They are an, a bilingual improv comedy group here in Tokyo. They'll be performing at the, uh, what's it called here, the Super Deluxe in Roppongi. Uh, doors open at 7.30. I myself will be going down there, so if you see me, come over and say hi. And um, what else was I going to say? I just forgot what I was going to say. I can't remember now. Anyways, oh, I know what I was going to say. Um... Uh, some of you know, obviously, we are Gaijin Pod is very active on social media. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, and uh, I noticed that our um, Instagram account is up close to a thousand users now. So that's kind of cool. But I want to talk about the um, Gaijin Pot Facebook group. We actually started a Facebook group a while back to kind of uh, give an area for our users to talk about their their lives here after we shut the forum down. And I noticed our Facebook group just clicked over 5,000 members last week. So that's kind of cool. So if you're looking for an area uh, to talk about, you know, life in Japan, and uh, one thing I should mention about our Facebook group is I, I uh, heavily monitor this group. <laughs> so if you were on our forum before and you got crapped on because of the idiots on our forum, don't worry about it. It's not going to happen on our Facebook group. One, Facebook's a lot more open, so people, I think, are a little bit more polite. And two, I monitor the group quite heavily. So it's trying to create a nice, uh, positive environment for anyone to come on and ask questions about life in Japan here. So definitely check that out on our Facebook group. 
And that's it. That wraps up this episode of the G Pod. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. I'm Anthony Joe, and I'll talk to you next time. Bye bye.